I'd like you to open up there. We're past chapter 20. Chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments are found in that particular book. And um, what we have here in the tabernacle and what I've been bringing to you each week um, as we study through this is why are we studying this narrative portion of Scripture? Because it's an example to us, for sure, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It also gives us some pictures, some pictures whereby we can, um, well, actually more easily and remember more accurately the things of the Lord Jesus. Now, what do you mean, remember more easily? Well, neuroscience has been doing tests for more than 50 years about the brain. More and more as we enter into some of these incredible challenges, things like Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that, trying to understand the brain. And one of the tests that's been regularly performed with incredible accuracy is a test about pictures. That's what they do. They take somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 100 people or so. They take these 100 people and they show them 10,000 pictures. 10,000 pictures. And then a week later, they invite those same people back again and they show them 1,000 pictures. 500 of those pictures were identical to the pictures they saw the week before. 500 of them are new. And with incredible accuracy, the people can say, I've seen that picture before. I've seen that picture before. No, I haven't seen that picture before. There's something about the brain that helps us, that God has made, that helps us retain things when we see pictures of them. Now here's where this ties in to the tabernacle, ties into the lessons that we're learning in Exodus. Some of the things that we learn in Exodus are one-time events. Maybe Moses strikes a rock, or, or even the, the crossing of the Red Sea. It happens only once. When we come to the tabernacle in the wilderness, we get repetition over and over and over and over and over again. These pictures that God presents to his people. Now, obviously, it doesn't take a rocket science or a neuroscience to figure out why. Why does he show them over and over again? Because he wants them to remember them. That they point to something very, very special and particular. So, let me just give you a little table of contents to this sermon, what I'd like to do. The first thing I'd like to do is just simply locate where we are in Exodus and ask ourselves, what is the tabernacle? And, and let's get that picture back in front of us of what the tabernacle is. Then after we see what the tabernacle is, what I'd like to show you is those pictures that we believe are in the tabernacle that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing then I want to do is say, God, why did you do this? Why did you give us this tabernacle at this point, and why does it point to Christ? 
And then finally, I want to just put some application on it as to so what. So that's where we're going with this. The first thing that we want to do is we just want to take a look at the tabernacle and we want to ask ourselves, what exactly is it? Now, I, I'm just here in my Bible wanting to locate this in Exodus. You say, well, Pastor, I mean, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of Israel stuff. That's a lot of ceremonial, sacrificial laws that, quite frankly, every time I go to read through the Bible and I get to this section, I kind of have to, I just kind of try and, maybe I skip it, maybe I get past it. It's a lot of stuff, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, one general question I ask myself is, is why does God take more than a third of these 40 chapters in Exodus to outline the role of the tabernacle in the wilderness? There's got to be a reason why there's so much import that he puts to it. Uh, I, I, I finish up here in chapter 20. I see that there's some other laws in 21, 22, 23. I, I see that the structure of Exodus sometimes can be confusing. Uh, I get to chapter 23, and God renews his promise with Moses to, to be with him. He says in, in 23, 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So we know they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Now they're at the foot of Sinai. And God is saying to Moses, I'm going to send an angel in front of you to lead you into the promised land. So that's in 23, but then we get some, some more laws and uh, some challenges that's going on in there. And then Moses goes up onto the mountain. Now here's another point of a little bit of challenge and confusion in understanding this section of Exodus. Often, according to the movie anyway, Moses only went up a couple of times on the mountain. You're right. He went up one time. He got what uh, Charlton Heston got. You know, got talked to God and the Ten Commandments. But then he went back down. And if you recall, the children of Israel were making a golden calf, so he broke those. But he gets a new one, so he obviously went back up again. The truth is, as we read through Exodus, depending on exactly how you count, Moses went up on the mountain eight times, up and down the mountain at least eight times that are recorded in there. And so the covenant gets renewed and confirmed along the way. And what, what the general two parts in this construction of the tabernacle is, one time Moses goes up on the mountain and he's talking to God, and in my words, God gives him the blueprints. This is what it's supposed to look like. In fact, this is exactly what it's supposed to look like. In chapter 25, when they're collecting the contributions for the tabernacle in the wilderness, in verse 8 it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So uh, one of the times that Moses went up there on the mountain was just to get the, the blueprints, to get the plan of what was going on. Now we've got another picture that is a, just a sketch of it, of course, but here you can see the plan of the tabernacle in the wilderness, and, and uh, you remember the, the video that you just saw. But Moses, you're supposed to make that exactly. So we get these in, in chapters 23, 24, 
25, 26, 27, we get more of the blueprints. He's just getting these. When we get to 28, this is what the priests are supposed to wear. So this is what I want your priests to put on in their holy array and how they're to be consecrated in chapter 29. More of the details come in chapter 30 and, and on. God not only said this is the way it's going to be made, one of the particular places I have quite affection to in the Bible is chapter 31. I realize that makes me a bit weird, but in this case, the Bible says that God has given particular gifts to a couple of people, um, Olahav and Bezaleel, and he's, he's gifted them in all manner of craftsmanship. And I like that. I like to tinker with things. And, and I, I like seeing that God gives gifts to men and women for his service. And so you see him appointing the people who are actually supposed to build it there in chapter 31. Then we get to chapter 32. Now, that took a little while. It took a little while for me to explain it to you. It took a lot longer for God to outline that to Moses up on the mountain. And then the God said, Moses... I think you need to get back down there. And in chapter 32, Moses comes back down on the mountain and sees that the people have been led astray. Uh, where is this Moses? Oh, we haven't seen him in a long time. Why, he's all that smoke and fire on the top of that mountain. Why, he's probably dead. Moses is gone. What are we going to do? It didn't take the people very long, and they started taking off their gold earrings and their necklaces, and they gave it all to Aaron. I love what the text says, and, and surely I'm going over these chapters where a myriad of sermons could be preached. One of the funniest, silliest, most ridiculous lines in all of the Bible come when Moses said to Aaron, Aaron, tell me, what did this people do to you that you would do such an abominable thing? And Aaron, being the first priest and prince of a guy that he is, says, this is Buzz paraphrase, sorry. I don't know. I mean, I just threw the gold in a pot and the calf came out. I mean, that, that's reminiscent of the garden, isn't it, really? You know, it wasn't me, it was her. It wasn't her, it was the devil it was and so Moses in his anger took the tablets that he had at that point and he broke them in anger in chapter 32 God said that this is a stiff necked people in chapter 32 I've seen this people in verse 9 I've seen this people and behold it is a stiff necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says to Moses at that point, I'm going to kind of treat you like a new Abraham. Moses, step back out of the way while I just zap these people. I just wipe them off the face of the earth, and I'll just start again with you, Moses, and make a great nation out of you. Well, I really appreciate Moses at this point. 
if it was buzz step out of the way I'm going to wipe these people out and make a great nation out of you I'm telling you I don't know except for the grace of God I'm going to say well God I mean if that's your idea and Moses, of course, intercedes, and God listens to Moses, and he doesn't wipe them out there in chapter 32. We get to chapter 33, and God says to Moses, Okay, I'm going to give you your marching orders. 33.1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from and I will send the angel before you. Now, this is not the second time. This is the third time, actually. Back in 32, he said it again. Three times God said to Moses, I will send an angel in front of you. And uh, I'll, he'll show you the way. And he'll describes all the kinds of things that he will do for the people. I won't go, he says, because you are a stiff-necked people. And, uh, and Moses is bewildered about this later in chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Once again, we remember the you know, chapter 3 of the book of Exodus of the burning bush. Moses has got a lot of questions. God responds, and he said, uh, My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. I like that word rest there. It's the same word. Interestingly enough, a lot of the language is used back in the garden. The word rest there in Hebrew is the same word that when God took Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, it's the same word here, the same root word anyway, for the word rest. In other words, I know that you're traveling a long way from Egypt, you're wandering all around, but there's coming a time when I will rest you, I will nest you, I will put you into the promised land. And he said to him, if your presence, this is Moses now saying back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now there's the presence. He's saying your presence has to go with us. And I began to think about this, pondering this sermon, thinking about the presence of the Lord. I read from one scholar that he said that the presence with God and God being present with us has become somewhat of white noise. White noise. Now, if you're not familiar with that kind of a terminology, sometimes people will put on their devices uh, sounds of rain, you know, on your, uh, or, or uh, ocean waves, or something like that. Because there are some people who are not comfortable with sleeping in perfect silence and need some background noise. That's called white noise. It's the kind of noise that sound is happening, but you're paying no attention to it. The presence of God. The presence of God will never leave you or forsake you. The presence of God. I began pondering that. The presence of It's something that every Christian holds very dear. And yet exactly what are you holding dear? 
just that in some maybe spiritual sense, geographically, God is somewhere around here? Or perhaps it's deeper than that in the New Testament that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God dwells in me. And so I am present and God is present. God is with me. Kind of have a little pet peeve about that when it gets into some, I call them the, the be with prayers. The be with prayers. You ever heard anybody pray the be with prayer? Father, be with us today. Father, be with him when he goes to work. Father, be with her during the surgery. Father, be with, be with, be with, be with. I get to the place where I'm like, exactly what does that mean? I'm not criticizing that it shouldn't be done, but are we thinking? What are we asking? And what is going on here when God says, my presence will be with you? I want to know this. It's obviously very, very important. And therefore, I'm laboring over this to see what's going on. Because God says to Moses, build me a sanctuary, build me a tent that I may live with my people. God has this desire to live with his people. And he demonstrates it through this tabernacle in the wilderness. I, I like what D.A. Carson says about the picture that is going on in the tabernacle in the wilderness. This is what he says. Nothing. This is key. This is pretty important when you say nothing. Nothing more powerfully attests to the unique, revelatory, and mediating role. Carson's got a vocabulary. A unique, revelatory, and mediating role of Jesus Christ than the insistence that he is the true temple, that Jesus Christ is the true temple. Now, he does that in John chapter 2. Before I go there, let's just get a hold of what he's actually saying here. He's saying nothing attests to God revealing to us Jesus Christ, particularly in the Old Testament, God revealing to us Jesus Christ. Nothing is more revelatory. And nothing is more mediating, that is, between God and man, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is more than calling him the true temple, the true tabernacle in the wilderness. Once again, I recall what I did with you a few weeks ago, last week, and I do it over and over again because it's good for us. You, you remember when I brought the picture of my little grandkids and I said, here's the picture of the grandkids. Now, how ridiculous is it when these kids come running in my house to visit Pops, and all I do is sit and stare at the picture instead of the real thing, you see. In this particular case, Jesus Christ is the true temple. Nonetheless, we have said in the study of Old Testament narrative that God has what? God has spoken. And when God speaks, we listen. We pay attention. And I believe that God has spoken, yes, of the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the John 2 passage, we can put it up in front, but I'm going to just zip right through. That's that interchange with the, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders where Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. They thought he was crazy. 
because by that time we have Herod's temple, brick and mortar, huge edifice. Well, it took us over 60 years to build this. What do you mean you're going to tear it down and build it back up? But the Bible clearly translates that for us, helps us with the interpretation by saying that Jesus was talking about himself as the true temple. Well, now, if Jesus is the true temple and it's revelatory to us, what is being revealed? Well, I want to go back to the tabernacle and just cite some things. And as I do, the teacher in me wants to explain some things about going back and looking at these pictures. Sometimes we get a picture in the Old Testament that's just simple. We can clearly see the connection. I think of John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the Bible says this. He's reciting Numbers chapter 21 when he does it, but this is what he says. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, if I go to Numbers 21, I look what Moses did in the wilderness. He took a bronze snake, he put it up on a stake, and he nailed it to it. That's pretty clear to me. It's a pretty... The Bible itself is interpreting itself. And it's saying that as Moses nailed that, so must the Son of Man be nailed. Pretty simple. When I see Old Testament pictures pointing to New Testament things... I would say that if I were drawing concentric circles, that would be pretty close to the bullseye. That's as clear as anything. Now, sometimes I see other things that I don't know are exactly that same thing. For instance, maybe John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I'm pretty sure that that's pinpointing the sacrificial lamb of the Passover that we talked about a few weeks ago that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Passover lamb. It's pretty clear. Sacrifice has been done for hundreds of years, so maybe there's some room. Maybe that's one of the other circles. And, and maybe we draw a third circle and a fourth circle as we try and connect an Old Testament picture to a New Testament. As we go further out in the circles, we've got to do it a little more tenuously. Some of the things I'm about to show you, I think, are as clear as any. And then some others we might put in an outside circle. We begin. We begin with the, with, the, with the altar, all the way out here, the altar of burnt offerings, where they're to bring in. The book of Hebrews, and I've got so, so many scriptures and things, but I'll make sure that you'll at least get... Uh, the citations. Here I'm in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. Not going to take the time to actually turn to it, but here it says that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, Hebrews can speak in a language that's kind of challenging for us. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Well, He's speaking to these Hebrews. He's ta talking to them. He's saying that Jesus is better than this. Jesus is better than Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is the true tabernacle. And in this case, he is saying that there are people who cannot eat from the altar that is of the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't know him. Because they don't know him. He's a better altar. Or what about the next piece of furniture? The laver, that's where you saw in the video where the man dipped his hands in the cleansing. And I think about going to 
1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or I think of Ephesians 5 and the instruction of husbands um, uh, to wives, that the husband is to wash the wife in the water, the cleansing of the wife in the water. And so we see the pictures of the labor that's there. We go inside the door of the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. This is the holy place. And we find the only light in the tabernacle. Uh, the seven branch lampstand. The only light in the tabernacle. And when I draw my circles and say this points to this, I realize that that might be incredibly foreign to you. In some cases, I do not think that it is as foreign to Jesus' listeners, to his hearers of the first century, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. You see, sometimes in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't really understand why everybody gets so upset. Why Jesus says this, or he teaches that, or he reads a passage of Scripture and says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And boom, these people are outraged. One of the reasons we don't really get that is because we're not in that culture. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the only light in the world. Or the next one, as we go across again from the lampstand over across to the table of showbread. And we read in John chapter 6. The whole chapter is really interesting. You think that Moses brought you bread from heaven? You think that manna that came down for you to eat is the true bread? And he turns around and he says in 648, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You see these pictures? All these pictures. The altar of incense is the next piece of furniture that's back in the center. Probably not as big as this is showing it, but that's okay. It's right here before this line here. This line represents the veil or curtain. Right here, the, the altar of incense. And I think about the, 